It's Tuesday, January the 12th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. It's my honor to be your moderator today. If this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're in store for is a conversation in which three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offer their unique insights to what may lie ahead in these complicated and uncertain times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist, the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist podcast broadcast, and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, it's great to be here again. Good to see you all. It's been a month, it's been way too long, my friend. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost where he thinks great thoughts and writes books about us all being doomed, that's D-O-O-M-E-D, is the redoubtable Neil Ferguson. Neil's a renowned historian and author, and he is also, fortunately for us, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Hello, Bill. It's nice to be back. A belated Happy New Year to Goodfellows listeners. Excellent. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. Great to be with you and John and Neil. So uh, when we talked about doing this episode about a week ago or so, we thought we'd do a hodgepodge, just sort of a grab bag of things since uh, we last talked in very early December. And then... Reality took over. Uh, 2021 looking a lot like 2020 in terms of surreal being the order of the day and the events at the U.S. Capitol last week. So let's begin this episode by looking at a clip of what it is that the president said, and then we can get into the results. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Okay, Neil Ferguson, that speech was not exactly Braveheart, Mel Gibson-like, if you will. You've written about this. You've been asked this about a million times, I suppose, by now. But in your estimation, Neil, did the president commit a crime? And if so, then what is the proper punishment for what happened? Well, he didn't commit a crime in that clip. And indeed, if one goes through the entire speech carefully, he says at one point that the march that he's proposing on the Capitol should be peaceful. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to really be uh, very pedantic, you'd, you'd say no impeachable high crime or misdemeanor there. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that when I take a step back and put that speech in the context of everything that President Trump did really from election night until now, I'd have to come to a different conclusion. I think it's already clear, it was clear before the events of January the 6th that the president was using improper means to try to overturn the outcome of the election, uh, notably with his call to the Secretary of State of Georgia, which was like a transcript from uh, Goodfellas, the gangster movie, not the Hoover Institution broadcast. And if you then think about what he and his allies were doing in the run-up uh, to January the 6th, there's no question in my mind that they were seeking to exert improper pressure on a Congress, on the legislature, uh, to invalidate the election result. That seems to me to be an impeachable offense. For me, the last couple of months have been like watching 
classical political theory about how republics descend into tyranny be played out uh, in real time on TV. So I think without wanting to uh, overstate the case, the speech itself could be construed as acceptable speech, but in the context in which it was given, there's no doubt in my mind that it was intended to precipitate political intimidation of the legislature. And that is in violation, in my view, of the president's oath to uphold the constitution. Okay. Uh, worth noting, the House uh, will pass one article of impeachment, but that is uh, the article is inciting it in its direction. They didn't go down the road with Georgia, Neil. Uh, so what's the punishment? Well, it's, of course, uh, strange to contemplate using uh, the 25th Amendment to remove him because that was not an amendment designed, I think, for these circumstances. Mm -hmm. It was an amendment designed for a situation such as arose with President Woodrow Wilson, where he was incapacitated by illness and really could not and should not have been carrying out uh, the functions of the president after the stroke that he suffered. So you're left really with a choice. Uh, do you rush through an impeachment in the final days of the presidency in order to establish uh, that what happened was unacceptable and, and a violation of of the Constitution? Or do you just let the clock run down and, and Trump leave office uh, without uh, impeachment? To be honest, when he was impeached a year ago, I felt, and I felt the minute I heard about the Zelensky phone call, that he'd done something that was uh, impeachable. He clearly sought to uh, pressurize the Ukrainian government to dig up opposition research on Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. But it was never, ever likely a year ago that the Senate would vote uh, to convict. And I'm not sure, looking at the current situation, that it's a, a great deal more likely today. Right. So... I'm left with the somewhat depressed and depressing inference that they'll go through with it in the House, but he won't at any point be convicted by the Senate because ultimately too many Republican senators feel that their political futures are inextricably entangled with Donald Trump's and they cannot afford to dissociate themselves from him even after all that has happened in the last couple of months. Okay, HR, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you think should be done uh, with the week left in the president's presidency. I'd also like your thoughts, HR, on the news reports that the Speaker of the House reportedly uh, reached out to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, a conversation about trying to rein in the president's ability to do things militarily. The question, HR, what is what is to be Newtonian about this? What is What is the proper opposite reaction versus, if you will, an opposite overreaction? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think we can all agree this is an utter failure of leadership. This is anti-leadership on on the part of the president. So whether or not you think it's a you know it, it's a criminal offense, I think we can all say it is an utter failure of leadership. What do we expect of leaders? We expect leaders to be to be selfless, to be about their mission. Of course, this was all about President Trump, his election, this creation of this fantasy of, of a massive. Uh, c conspiracy that would would overturn the results of the election and this 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 you know this this false uh, idea that that galvanized the, the, this crowd. I mean, you you want a, a president to have a sense of duty, a sense of duty to the Constitution of the United States, when in fact he undermined the Constitution of the United States by trying to inject the executive branch in decisions about the election and the transition. Well, you know, our founders were pretty darn smart, and they wrote the executive branch out of any role. Uh, in the transition for a reason. And I think they're vindicated clearly uh, by the events of the, of the, of the past week. Mm. But also, you know, a, a leader has a responsibility to set the tone, to set the environment uh, in an organization. When, when you typically see breakdowns in moral character and discipline in combat, it isn't because the, the commander said, go do this, this undisciplined act go violate your ethos in this way, it's because that commander set the wrong tone for that organization. And so I think the president is responsible 
He is responsible for what happened in this assault on, on the Capitol. But to your question, you know, about what, what do you do about it? What I would like to see maybe is what I'll sh- I'd like to share is I'd like to see a unanimous vote in the House to impeach, whether it goes to a Senate trial or not. But a unanimous vote to get to John's point is that this has to be bipartisan. This has to be it has to be clear that we expect more of our leaders. We expect our leaders not to compromise our principles to score points from a partisan point of view or to redound to their personal benefit. On on the uh, on what the speaker did with calling up uh, General Milley and saying, you know, I just wanted to make sure that you know, that he was in control from of nuclear weapons. I think that's that's irresponsible too, right? It's not as irresponsible maybe as 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 uh, as motivating an attack on the Capitol that resulted in five deaths and put our lawmakers and many others in peril. Uh, but it's pretty darn irresponsible because what she was doing is to score partisan points, right? right. To drive even more home uh, the point that the president is is, is irresponsible. She drugged the military into partisan politics. And so so I think we have to expect more of our political leaders. And I think we've seen some good examples. You know, I mean, you know, of course, you know, I'm always the optimist here. But, hey, you know, nobody would say that Mitch McConnell is a particularly inspiring speaker. OK, but I'll tell you, the, 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 the speech he gave was inspiring. I think Vice President Pence rose to the occasion. I think other young leaders on both sides of the aisle did. I think Congressman Mike Gallagher and and his interview. I don't know if you saw it on the on the, on on Margaret Hoover's uh, firing line was was an example of of how our leaders you know can rise to the occasion, call out the president's behavior for what it is across party lines. So you know I, I don't know if this is criminal uh, or, or not, but from you know from a censoring or or impeachment perspective. As John said, it has to be bipartisan. And I think I think what we ought to take from this, from this galvanizing moment, maybe is, hey, all of us have to demand better from our leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that occurs to me is there's a very simple solution here. The president could have resigned. But Neil, there is no culture of shame, is there? People don't resign unless what? The feds are knocking on the door and you're about to get taken in, right? Well, I think expecting uh, President Trump to resign uh, is is expecting uh, a, a pig to sprout wings and and fly. Right. Uh, I think that here's where I disagree with uh, with John and agree with HR. I think that it would be much the best thing for the Republican Party to go ahead uh, and uh, convict in the Senate. And I suspect Mitch McConnell thinks that too, uh, because ultimately the Republican Party is staring a schism in the face. Uh, and it's it seems to me only going to be worse if Trump is left with any shred of legitimacy at the end of this process. There needs to be a cauterizing. There needs to be uh, a surgical strike. Uh, and those people who want to uh, identify themselves with a disgraced uh, president who's been at the second attempt uh, uh, impeached and convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors will be welcome to do that. But it will be very clearly a criminal faction, uh, a faction of the Republican Party that thinks insurrection and sedition are okay. Uh, and I think that that therefore will be a smaller uh, fraction, a smaller splinter group than if Trump is allowed to walk out of the White House uh, with some shreds uh, of respectability and, and legitimacy. So I do think this is an incredibly important moment, not just uh, for the country, but specifically for the Republican Party. And I agree with HR that it was remarkable to hear Mitch McConnell speak uh, as he spoke uh, last week. It was inspiring indeed to see Vice President Pence write a crucial letter uh, telling President Trump he would not go along uh, with Trump's uh, attempt uh, to overturn the election result. But I think unless the Republican Party in the Senate can follow through uh, and finish this uh, ugly job off, uh, then it it will, in fact, uh, be a dreadful mistake. And we'll end up with, with a Trumpist party. 
remember, it's not an absolutely unassailable law of history that there are only two parties. Uh, at times in American history, there have been uh, more than two. Think of the Bull Moose Party in the days of, of Teddy Roosevelt. And I think that the Republican Party is in grave danger of becoming a Trumpist party and an anti-Trump party, unless Trump is as completely discredited as he should now be. As I said, this takes me back to classical history, to the origins of political thought in the Western world. There can be no more classic example in modern times than this of a demagogue, a would-be tyrant, attempting to overthrow the Constitution by inciting the mob against the legislature, playing on the unpopularity of the legislature. I took a moment to look back at Gallup polls on the, uh, the confidence the public has in Congress. And in the last 10 years, it's reached uh, the lowest point since the polling began in the 1970s. So this was a, an absolutely classic moment in Western political theory when the would-be tyrant turns the mob against the legislature. Uh, if we don't regard that as a violation of the Constitution, we've forgotten everything that the founders said. Go back to Federalist One, go back to Hamilton's arguments about why you had to have a separation of powers, because the possibility always existed from the outset that a tyrant, a would-be tyrant, a demagogue would become president. So if I don't treat this as impeachable, then what really is? I mean, it, it, in, the, in the end, I think, John, even although uh, it's very late in the day, it is necessary to go through with this or the Constitution becomes a nonsensical document. But let me, we don't disagree as much as you think. <clears throat> I would be very happy if we could have a bipartisan uh, impeachment or censure or something bipartisan. Uh, my, my advice against impeachment was just in the couple of days that are, that are here, I don't think it would get organized that way and it would turn out being a partisan affair, which would make matters worse. But I, I want to, I think you're overstating the permanence of Trump. So I want to be the optimist here. <clears throat> what, what has happened in the last couple of months is the end of Trump and Trumpism. Well, we were at the end, uh, he was looking pretty good right after the election. Uh, and a man who would have resigned now is a man who would have said, look at the great things, the achievements I've done on policy, the, uh, how close we came in the election. We're making progress with blacks and Hispanics, the people I care about. I, the, here's my movement, my people. We will move into principled opposition. And then he might have had a political future. I, as I read things right now, um, Trump is has no political future. Trumpism has no political future. The Trump, the, the, you know, the support was always a lot of people who really couldn't stand his personal behavior, but kind of like the policy stuff. We're down to people in funny hats. I mean, just the, the, the number of people who, who will be with Trump three months from now is, is negligible, which is the great thing about it. Um, you know, he, he just he's gone from the political scene and 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 that's that's over because of this immense uh, self-destruction that he's gone into, um, which is, I think, the real, and I think it's going to happen quicker. They, you know, the McConnells and the Pences are looking great. The Cruises in the hallways are, are in deep trouble along with Trump. I don't think you're going to have a pro versus anti-Trump. There was going to be that. And I think Trump has just so disgraced himself that that's just not going to be what happens, uh, what happens in the... Um, John, I, I just I just have to push back against the idea that it's just a tiny number of crazies because polling shortly after uh, January the 6th showed substantial support amongst Republicans. In the YouGov poll, 45% of Republicans supported the storming of the Capitol building. So uh, although it's only a small number of, of crazy people who actually stormed the Capitol, a remarkably large proportion of Americans support what they did. So one can't, I think, assume that Trump is finished. Uh, I hope so. I, I hope so very much, but I doubt it when I look at these polling numbers suggesting, and this is a critical point, and this distinguish it, distinguishes our situation from that of the ancient world or the early modern world. Because of the way in which the internet has functioned, a conspiracy theory has become tremendously powerful. QAnon is a part of it. Anti-vaxxers are part of it. Uh, Stop the stealers are part of it. But this conspiracy theory, which has been building in the Trump era for some time, is not something that is just going to disappear uh, the day that uh, Donald Trump uh, is uh, kicked off 
Twitter because it's large, uh, it's widely distributed. And what strikes me most is how deeply convinced the people who believe in this conspiracy theory are, uh, like that unfortunate woman who was shot uh, in the Capitol building last uh, last week, who had gone down the rabbit hole of QAnon and ended up paying with it uh uh, paying for it with her life. So I, I just wish, I wish it would fade away, but it doesn't seem very plausible that it will. Well, I'm, I, I agree with you. Now, I'm, I'm looking forward a month or two, and my bet is that uh, Trump's support will vanish uh, in, in, uh, in among politicians as among regular people. Uh, well, let's come back to these conspiracy theories and the role of the media and so forth in this whole affair, because I think that is very important looking forward. But you also called him a, a tyrant, and boy, is he an incompetent tyrant if he's a tyrant. Uh, you know, tyrants call a national emergency and seize power. Uh, he, he's just a blithering incompetent at this point on this fantasy, this self-preserving fantasy uh, that a lot of his uh, a lot of his base have gone along with as kind of a fun fantasy, and and a small number go along with in a much more serious way. But uh, um, that 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 will fade along with Trump. Okay, let's uh, HR. Why don't you get the last word in on this segment? Well, just just a couple of comments. First of all, I think that the Democratic leaders have to not push people back toward you know whatever we call this phenomenon. The, you know, the, to the, yes. this, uh, to identify with those who were disenfranchised or uninformed uh, or or believing conspiracy theories to the degree. That, the, that they assaulted the U.S. Capitol. I think if they try to paint everyone who voted for Trump with the same brush, they will exacerbate the divisions in our society, even as they're saying the right things about unity. So I think we have to talk about really Republican Party leadership behavior, but also what we expect from Democratic Party leadership behavior. And then I would say that you know, if this was an attempted coup, and I, I would recommend the, the recent essay by Fiona Hill, who talked about really each of the president's actions and the degree to which they were meant to undermine our institutions, uh, I, I would just say, John, he's he may be incompetent as somebody who's trying to, to, to challenge the Constitution, but thank goodness for our institutions, which have been stress tested and, and came out looking pretty strong, stronger you know, than than I think many of us anticipated even. Uh, and we ought to be grateful for that. Let me just two cents on that. there, Because I want to find optimistic things. The strength of America's electoral institutions, I think, is, is a great lesson of this. And a lot of Democrats who are all for national vote, and uh, one national election bureau, I think, are coming around to, hey, the Electoral College is, you know, not a bad idea. And reverence for these institutions uh, is maybe not a bad idea. And having one single Federal Bureau of uh, Elections that Donald Trump could go in and subvert might not be such a good idea. So there's there's optimism here. Okay, let's uh, let's change our focus here to uh, big tech, which unlike Congress has already acted as to what to do vis-a-vis -vis President Trump, Twitter pulling the plug on the Trump account. Uh, Donald Trump on Twitter, born May 4th, 2009, died January 8th, 2021. Uh, Apple, Amazon, and Google have cut off Parler, which is the conservative alternative to Twitter. Twitch and Snapchat disabled Trump's account. Shopify took down two online stores affiliated with the President of the United States. Uh, Neil, if we just talked about what the president may have done wrong and what punishment should be, has big tech done anything wrong? And if so, what should their punishment be? Well, it is tempting to say that uh, the coup that succeeded uh, was the coup by big tech against Donald Trump. But uh, I have to say that I did warn Republicans of this danger some time ago, uh, back in 2017. I wrote a piece saying that the collision between uh, the Trump administration in Silicon Valley was inevitable, uh, that the big tech companies would never let him uh, do what he'd done in 2016, which was very successfully to use their platforms to win an election, mm -hmm. and that unless something was done uh, to legislation and as well as to regulation, the power of the big tech companies would become a fundamental threat to the democratic system. And I believe we have reached that point because the arguments I made back then, particularly about Section 230 of the Communications uh, Decency Act, as it was once known, uh, and about the need for some kind of First Amendment in cyberspace, were not heeded by Republicans until much too late. I remember when I made that, that argument at an American Enterprise Institute 
conference being told, oh, it sounds like you want to regulate, but we, we're not the regulation party. Well, now you understand, folks, that if you don't regulate companies as powerful as these, which have greater power over the public sphere than any companies in American history, more power than William Randolph Hearst, way more power than Rupert Murdoch, then this is what happens. They now determine who has access to the public sphere. Now, uh, in the excitement of last week, a great many liberals have said, hooray, well done to Facebook and to Twitter and to Amazon uh, and to Apple. This is great. Michelle Obama egged them on. But I have to say that this is the classic mistake uh, that people make uh, when they see illiberalism being applied to their enemies and cheer it. Uh, because in the end, the power uh, to cancel, to, to cancel even the president of the United States is an astonishing power that is wielded now by a handful of companies. Mm -hmm. And anybody who confidently assumes that they will only ever use that power in a benign way has learned absolutely nothing from history. So I must say, I, I see this as a doubly disastrous week for the United States. Not only has the presidency uh, been brought to the brink of, of disrepute, uh, not only has the Republican Party been brought to the brink of, of schism by Donald Trump, but now we see the dystopian nightmare realized of a handful of private actors, in fact, a handful of relatively young people uh, with the power to control access to the public sphere, which is what the internet now is. I, I, and I sometimes wonder which of these is worse. Actually, maybe the second one is worse because the first one failed. That coup failed. Uh, if indeed it was a coup, the insurrection against Congress ultimately failed ignominiously. But the coup that got rid of uh, President Trump from the internet, well, that succeeded. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think our job here is to say the same thing in different ways. <laughs> now I want to say the same thing all over again. Um, Neil points rightly to the conspiracy theories, the web of fantasies, both left and right running around uh, the internet. But right now on the right is the most important. And it's quick to jump, oh, that you know, tech uh, enables people to crazy conspiracy theories. I think we have to ask ourselves, why is there such a demand for crazy conspiracy theories? Um, and so let's try to understand these 45% of our fellow citizens who apparently live in this world. Well, uh, what they'll tell you is um, we're getting censored news. The major media are all part of the resistance. Uh, they're trying to sell us propaganda and uh, they're right. And so in that case, the, that's an environment where the demand for conspiracy theory for something that isn't, uh, that, that isn't censored uh, is strong. Where, where do you see the most gossip and conspiracy theories? In communist countries, where everybody knows that the official uh, news is just propaganda. So in fact, I, I agree with Neil, this is uh, this, the taking control of the media and further censoring it. Further censoring political speech, that's what's going on, is going to be counterproductive because it simply fuels the demand on the right. Um, William McGurn wrote in today's Wall Street Journal a, a great column on this, which is what really woke me up to it. And it's not just media, it's not just tech. Um, there are 45% get a sense that the elite institutions are all against them. And, and Bill um, documented that every student who applied to the Common App to college received an email instructing them about white supremacy and insurrectionists on the Capitol and that they were to think about this as an open wound regarding systemic racism. Uh, now that's an opinion, it's a political opinion, but if you're gonna apply to college in the United States, you get sent this political opinion, which tells you something about what you gotta say if you're gonna be in college, but also sends people off to this view that the elites are all, uh, are all looking down on us and that the game is all rigged and no wonder. So. I'm still Mr. Freedom of Speech, and that's uh, that's that's the um, that's that's the counterproductive part of it. But I do want to say what um, what Amazon did to Parler is exactly what Facebook is in court for doing from the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, they are using their power to get rid of a competitor, uh, and I I think Neil is exactly right. Um, it, this kind of censorship uh, will, they think they can control it. And this is, we're at the crossroads really for the Democratic Party. Will they take this moment and take on H.R. McMaster and heal the country, 
try to get us to a modus vivendi where we can all live together? Or is this the opportunity to take to shove it down their throats and, and take advantage of it? It's an irresistible opportunity. We control not just the tech companies, we control the people who let you into college with our line. Let's use it. Boy, may they come to regret it. And, and last note, this isn't, of course, the first. Uh, I, I was worried over the summer when media started uh, started censoring Donald Trump's tweets. Donald Trump was the president of the United States. Uh, now, he may say things that you find objectionable. Uh, I, I read the tweet that they shut him off for. He did not. They, the uh, the whole long thing that uh, that uh, Twitter put put up. They didn't say he called for violence. They said somebody might read between the lines here and view that as a call for violence. Shutting up the president of the United States over that is is dangerous territory. And it was dangerous already in the summer when it wasn't so clear. The point at where it went to farce, the Washington Post fact-checked a Trump tweet when he said he was being treated worse than the dog. And the Washington Post said, fact-check, many dogs are well-treated in the United States. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> That's when it's reduced to farce, but 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 it the control of political speech is always messy, and there's no way of fact checking and taking political speech. But that's what our country is built on—not just the First Amendment, but but the way we run things. So uh, I agree entirely. That that's the coup to worry about, and uh, and we need to agree um, that that uh, that censorship of our means of communication by a bunch of unelected twenty-something tech moguls is very dangerous. By the way, it's very unlikely, in my view, that the Democrats will do anything about this because they've gone down the antitrust route. And ultimately, antitrust actions, even if they do lead to the breakup of uh, some of the tech giants, don't uh, have any bearing on this issue. Uh, because even if Facebook uh, is forced to part with Instagram uh, uh, and WhatsApp, the reality is that uh, the rule of Section 230 will still apply, which is a wonderful catch-22 type rule, which allows these companies, and this was a rule designed when they didn't exist, essentially, or when they were just fledgling uh, startups. But the rule essentially says uh, you are a network platform if anybody accuses you of being a publisher. That is to say, you're not liable for any harms arising from content on your, on your site uh, under Section 230. But if you choose to engage in censorship, i.e. to behave as a publisher, then you're not liable for that either. And this is a wonderful uh, a wonderful clause that has been the basis, particularly for Facebook's uh, uh, and Google's uh, profitability. Unfortunately, only Republicans belatedly realized that this was the fatal problem. Democrats are not going to pursue this. It was interesting uh, that Trump mentioned Section 230 twice in that speech that he gave last Wednesday, too late. He realized way too late that he had been made by social media. I don't think he would have won in 2016 without social media, and he has been broken by them because he wasted the four years that he had to address this problem. And other Republican legislators, including Josh Hawley, came to it far too late to make a difference. Right. HR, you and Neil are the resident historians on this show. And I'm kind of what comes to my mind is what Churchill said about appeasement. What was appeasement? It's what feeding the crocodile, hoping he'll eat you last. Um, is this, in effect, appeasing big tech HR? Um, and explain to me a world how would big tech go after the left as it would go after the right in terms of rival? In other words, how does this ricochet against the left, which lets big tech do this to conservative alternatives? Well, I mean, that's that's the danger. Right. And this is where I think these two issues we're really talking about two fundamental issues, I think, which is who are going to be who are the arbiters of free speech. Right. And 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 should that be Mark Zuckerberg and and, and his equivalents and, and Twitter and so forth? Uh, and the second is, how do you manage or cope with the toxicity of the of the of the social media environment? And the way that these companies have done it, the big companies, is they have hired armies uh, of really intelligence and pseudo almost law enforcement uh, to, to to monitor the traffic and to, and to determine uh, based on initially algorithms that bring bring these messages and content to light and then go through a whole adjudicative process with uh, you know with, with volumes of guidelines and so forth um, and and you know so they're trying they're trying to do it but but do, but should they be the ones who are who are the arbiters of of, of free speech and 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 maybe would it be would it be easier? And I'd ask Neil to respond to this. 
you know, to lift the immunity associated with uh, with, with 230 and, and let there be almost kind of a, you know, a, a, uh, you know, a, a free market solution to this or a solution that involves real law enforcement, real adjudicative uh, processes. But what, what happens now, though, too, is related to the idea of a, a few companies really controlling the, the, this environment because you, you, you have to be a big company you know, with, with a lot of cash to be able to, to run that kind of a screening environment. Pollard didn't do it. This is one of the reasons why the platform said, okay, Pollard can no longer participate on, 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 these, on these platforms. So you know, I think that that there, these two questions, right? Who are going to be the who are the arbiters of free speech, and how do you cope with the toxicity of the environment and the degree to which this environment is contributing, right, to the polarization in our society, the incitement of violence, the the perpetuation of of these kind of conspiracy theories and disinformation campaigns. And you know, I, I just I don't have it figured out. I mean, Neil, you wrote about this in the Tower in the Square years ago. What is what does last week do to your thinking uh, about this? Uh, and 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 what w- what is the solution? Well, HR in the square in the tower, I I made the argument that you needed to get rid of or rewrite section two thirty so that it wasn't a, a charter for censorship and politically skewed censorship, but at the same time you had to create. Uh, some kind of quasi-First Amendment in cyberspace. Now, I think the Supreme Court took some important steps in that direction not long after I finished the book because there was an important ruling that established, uh, this was Packingham versus North Carolina in 2017, that established that the internet platforms were, quote, the modern public square, uh, just as Anthony Kennedy said, while in the past there may have been difficulty in identifying the most important places for the exchange of views, today the answer is clear. It is cyberspace, the vast democratic forums of the internet in general and social media in particular. So I think the problem we have is is fixable, but it's not going to be fixed by antitrust actions uh, for reasons that John already alluded to. And I think the Democrats have quietly gone down the antitrust road knowing that it's an enormously long cul-de-sac. Remember the Microsoft antitrust action that ended up with Microsoft not being broken up. I can imagine exactly the same outcomes here. Uh, But in fact, it doesn't address the central problem, which is that the big tech companies have become the new censors. And indeed, internally, they've even talked about that Uh, There's a Google internal uh, document I came across when I was writing my paper for George Schultz, What is to be Done, in which they they talk about themselves as the good censors. So unless we go after this very pernicious quality that Section 230 has, which is essentially that it, it gets them off the hook of liability for harms arising from content and off the hook, uh, for liability when they when they censor uh, free speech, we are going to be in a very bad place. And the idea that the tech companies will always uncritically line up with the Democratic Party, I think, needs to be looked at with skepticism, because back in the day, the tech companies were libertarian. Remember those days? In the early days of Silicon Valley, the, the atmosphere was distinctly libertarian uh, and, and to the right, certainly on issues of free speech. Uh, Twitter was supposed to be the free speech wing of the free speech party. It was only under pressure uh, from the left, often inside their own companies, that the big that the big tech companies moved to this increasingly uh, censorious role. Particularly after the events of 2017 in Charlottesville, you'll you'll remember that was when the, it it started to become overt. But to me, the remarkable thing is that that Republicans took so long to realize the mortal danger they were in. And I think that was partly because uh, with Brad Pascal for so long in the role of digital director, they thought they had Facebook on their side. And indeed, uh, Mark Zuckerberg tried very hard, fought very hard to hang on to uh, a free speech policy, including the freedom to run mendacious political ads until finally he was just forced to capitulate uh, in the final phase of the campaign. So that that's the way I think about this. But the Democrats will be making a huge mistake if they leave big tech in charge of access to the public sphere. It is only a matter of time uh, before that comes back uh, to bite them in the backside. Mm-hmm. John? I would just add, 
what they the they are censoring political speech. Uh, and Navalny's uh, letter about this, you know, he said, "I get death threats all the time. You're not doing that." Uh, the uh, looting this summer was coordinated on Facebook. So Facebook's algorithms seem to be good at at, at reading uh, between the lines of Trump tweets. But when somebody puts up, "Hey, let's all go down to Gucci and hit it at 10:03 p.m. tonight," they don't seem very good at at stopping that. I think it's it's going to be more lasting than Neil says, just because of the infiltration of the woke left into all the institutions of society right now. So it's I, I just don't see a bunch of twenty-something libertarians um, or or, or uh, Trump supporters uh, able to go in and start manning the uh, the uh, the filters at, at Google and Facebook. So uh, uh, and it's just so tempting. Every this is. The internet is getting more and more censored. Um, you know, China, look at China. They've discovered what a wonderful tool uh, control of the internet is for uh, maintaining political power. Uh, that temptation is going to be there very strongly. And, and I don't see the Democrats who are now in charge of a very precarious majority um, uh, abandoning that delicious opportunity anytime soon, especially because you don't have to do it through big legislation. It's uh, like much of the administrative state quietly through the back door. You get to keep your monopoly so long as things go the way we want to go. So I, I think it's it's going to be, it's it's more insidious and it's going to be with us for a long time. I mean, competition is the answer, as we saw with Parler. <laughs> uh, um, when people get tired of censorship, they can try something else. But uh, in the regulatory state, uh, bringing it, not just the size, but um, with the government in charge, uh, having competition like that is going to be harder and harder. And John, it's worth adding on the subjects of competition that in many ways, the most remarkable thing that happened in the wake of uh, the uh, storming of the Capitol was Amazon's kicking Parler off yes. uh, Amazon Web Services. I wonder if you realize that Amazon controls roughly half of global cloud services. Uh, now, if that is not uh, bordering on monopoly, uh, I don't know what is. And it gives Jeff Bezos an extraordinary uh, power. Uh, and by the way, uh, it's going to be fascinating watching the Trump movement trying to find a new network on which to operate, uh, because even email could be problematic. They, of course, have a massive database of email addresses. Uh, but what happens if uh, even that platform uh, is prohibited to them? So you realize at this moment, just the sheer extent of these companies' uh, power, nearly half of all the cloud capability in the world is run by Amazon Web Services. In my view, that is far too much power for a company as, as scarcely regulated as Amazon now is to have. And that's, that's what I meant by my analogy. The, the government is uh, suing right now Facebook uh, for its uh, for for its uh, monopoly for trying to get rid of competitors. And uh, Amazon just did that to Parler in a in a dramatic form, far worse than anything that Facebook has been accused of uh, in, in court so far. Well, you know, Neil, you uh, said something about Amazon that the uh, average Trump MAGA supporter probably doesn't know. But let me posit this to the three of you. Uh, Donald Trump comes down that escalator in 2015, and he appeals to a sector of the American public that feels what? Disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged. Universities don't speak to them. The media doesn't speak to them. Um, they buy into conspiracy theories. They're mad. They're outraged. They feel scorned, ridiculed. Uh, Anderson Cooper's comment last week about the uh, protesters all going to Olive Garden afterwards and the Holiday Inn, it's snobbery, plain and simple. Uh, Donald Trump may be gone in a week, uh, gentlemen, but what about the future of Trumpism? Because it seems to me that you still have this energy force still out there in the political system, and it's just going to, almost like a like a dirt devil in a house, it's just going to swoop around and just go around and look for somewhere new to clean up. So what happens to Trump supporters moving forward? Where do they go? They're not an energy force. They are part of our fellow citizens who have genuine concerns that uh, the elite was not paying much attention to. Uh, and they are not, they, they held their nose uh, to Donald Trump, almost all of them. I, so I, uh, Trump is a populist. We keep using that word. What does that mean? That means in part, listening to the concerns of citizens, which part of the other uh, uh, politics hadn't done. 
mostly populism means he had a direct connection. He felt, I tweet me back and forth to the people. Uh, I'm not just uh, insulated in Washington. Well, that is gone. But those people are still there. Their concerns are still there. And they are part of, um, you know, there's lots and lots of people in this country with lots and lots of concerns. And political parties are out there to try and and listen to their concerns and help them. So they do not have to express themselves through a populist, uh, through a Twitter, through conspiracy theories or resentment or all the other things that associated themselves with Donald Trump. So I'm much more optimistic uh, that um, uh, it could be a Republican party, it could be a Democratic party, or maybe the Whigs will come back. Uh, Like uh, I keep hoping the libertarian moment will come and we'll reestablish a third party because I think everybody's secretly a libertarian. They just don't know it yet. Uh, But I I think through the regular order of American political representation, those people's voices uh, will be heard. Mm -hmm. I can't help noting that as was true in the protests of the summer, it wasn't really the uh, downtrodden and dispossessed who were making the running. Uh, actually, if you look at the a social analysis of the people who stormed the Capitol, it included uh, people who were uh, executives at companies, the son of a judge. Uh, this was not uh, exactly les, les miserables. Uh, and the same was true with the more radical protests in the wake of the killing of, uh, of George Floyd. The, the most extreme and violent protesters in Seattle and Portland uh, turned out on close inspection to include graduate students and the like. So I think we need to draw a distinction between the professional agitators, uh, the people who are drawn uh, to mob violence, who are often a, a motley crew. Uh, and it was a very motley crew that stormed the Capitol last week. And those sections of the electorate that voted uh, for Donald Trump in even larger numbers in 2020 than they had voted for him in in 2016, because it's a different question. Uh, And I think it's a much more important question. In 2016, I had a great deal of sympathy with the people who voted for Donald Trump. I understood very much why they had done it and what it was that had led them to this state of disillusionment with party establishments on both sides. And I still understand why after uh, the the third three years of of Trump, uh, they were ready to give him a second term. What was hard for me to understand was why they stuck with them through the fourth year when Trump revealed himself to go back to something HR said earlier, to be a woefully incompetent leader. Uh, All kinds of things went wrong in this country in 2020, uh, but they would have gone uh, somewhat less wrong if the president had not consistently uh, intervened in in unconstructive, uh, wrongheaded ways uh, in the American response to COVID-19. And yet they stuck with him. And that, that, that I think was, that was remarkable because you'd have thought that the complete failure of, of the public health response and then the cratering of the economy would have really done more damage. And yet the margin in November, on November the 3rd, the margin of Joe Biden's victory was not, not enormous. So the question, where do they go from here, I think depends on what the Republican Party does now. I think if they tolerate, wink, uh, give Trump a pass, then I think the Trumpist movement becomes uh, a powerful and ultimately inimical force to conservatism. If they, as I said earlier, uh, come down hard as they should on Donald Trump, uh, uh, convict him in the Senate, then I think there's some chance uh, that the movement of that Trumpism will dwindle as a movement and Republican the Republican Party can can begin to uh, cleanse itself of the uh, uh, of the terrible taint really of the particularly of the last three months. And and just as a little note of hopefulness before we're gonna HR. That process has begun. You know, there there was lots of people had voted for Trump in November, especially the increases in uh, in black and Hispanic support. And then uh, they uh, Trump lost them Georgia, the sort of the most momentum momentous political uh, event of the season, which we'll probably talk about later, is the loss of Georgia. That was all due to Donald Trump's antics after November, and it's the beginning of the swing uh, the swing against him that you mentioned. HR. Well, you you have been thinking about how the violence in the summer relates to what we saw last week, right? And 
And I think what we've seen is large segments of the American population feeling disenfranchised, feeling like they don't have a say in, in, in how they're governed. And I've been thinking about really the, the causes of this sentiment. I think it does have to do with the quality of opportunity, with all of, uh, of Neil's caveats in mind in connection with you know, how diverse a group this was that, that, uh, that stormed uh, the, the Capitol last week. But I think there are those who believe that they that they they can't make a better life life for themselves with, within within this system and and this this is inequality of opportunity along racial lines along social lines and so forth. I think a second a second reason is loss of confidence in institutions. That hey those, those people that are part of our establishment they don't have our interests in, in mind and that's frustrations with you know with the executive branch the with the legislative branch with local government government uh, to to a certain extent. Um, but it's also lack of confidence in other institutions. The fourth estate, I would put pretty high up on that list in terms of sources where you that you could go to for authoritative I- information. I think a, a third a third reason for this is 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 uh, is the information environment that we've been talking about, right? The toxicity of it, the the way that the algorithms and the business models show people more and more extreme content uh, as, as a way to get more. Clicks and we're advertising money, but it's a way that, that pulls us apart from each other and reduces further our confidence in, in authoritative sources of information as well as in our institutions. And finally, as a historian, I would say predictably, maybe that it, it's a loss of our sense of, of, of history. You know, and and uh, you know, last uh, last episode, I I, uh, I quoted George Clinton uh, on if you don't like the effects, don't produce the cause. Now I'd like to, to to quote George Orwell, right? Who we remember said in 1984 that he who controls the past controls the future, and that he who controls the present controls the past. And I think our sense of who we are as Americans has been subjected to what I would call a, a curriculum uh, that, that that is driven by almost a mild form of self-loathing that that doesn't acknowledge the great gifts of of our revolution. That that doesn't that, that does also acknowledge you know all the, the blights on our history especially uh, especially the, the great blight of, of chattel slavery but but then celebrate take time to celebrate that in our most destructive war in history that we emancipated four million of our fellow Americans that 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 this republic has always been as we've talked about before uh, it, it has always required constant nurturing as it does today so I think it is these four these four interrelated problems of you know, of 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 frustration of inequality of opportunity, uh, of of you know, of, of lack of confidence in institutions, in this toxic information environment, and and, and then also a, a loss of our sense of history. So, hey, you know, what do we do about it? I think we always have to, you know, think about that. Right? Okay, we, we this in this show we don't just talk about problems and lament them, but I think that the, the, that the solution is in four areas. It's education. I mean, I think, Neil, it's what, what you've been doing with the Applied History Program, for example, what Victor's been doing with the Military History Program here. I think it is wrestling with this problem, which we're going to talk about, I'm sure, in future episodes on on the, you know, the, the, the toxic environment of the Internet and social media and the lack of confidence in the mainstream media as well. I think, John, it's, it's what you've been working on, which is you know, economic growth and equality of opportunity. And how we we address income disparities, and how we restore confidence in our free market economic system, and the work that you and and, and your colleagues on the economic side uh, have have done done here, and then finally, how we how we uh, we strengthen ins- institutions, and that's been a big a big theme. I think we've these are four of the themes that we've talked about across the past year during this pandemic, but I think they are also the themes that are relevant to us, you know, breaking out of this. And and, uh, and and strengthening our republic with what what I what I hope is kind of a severe wake up call uh, with this assault on the Capitol last week. HR, I think what you've just outlined is a kind of program of vaccination, and my suggestion is that there's an analogy here uh, that t- Trumpism, uh, which has shaded from populism into fascism, uh, is a kind of uh, political virus. Uh, and uh, the hope must be that there's some natural immunity uh, being generated at the moment by people who voted for Trump but are now looking in horror at what is being done. But I think you're also right to think that we need some vaccination. And if we teach, if we teach history right, then tyranny and every symptom of it should be something that Americans are immune to. 
And the fact that so many Americans did not see what happened last week as clearly in violation of the spirit of the republic, that's the sign that we've been failing in our vaccination through education. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait a minute, guys. So before we start vaccinating, you got to diagnose the sickness. Um, you know, when, when you say education is the answer, let's look in charge of who's in charge of education right now. It's the 1619 Project. Uh, so education doesn't always mean people who have your views uh, uh, get to pass them along. I think we have to recognize, and this is both sides, we're, we're at a moment when something horrible has happened and the moral failings of one man, Donald Trump, loom large. But um, that's not the beginning and the end of it. And I think both sides need to recognize we are in a cycle of increasing the, the cycle of, of refusing to admit the legitimacy of the victor and that you've lost and go on. Part of that is the larger and larger costs of losing. Uh, the winners of elections can now take narrow majorities and shove things down the throats of the losers without getting vague consensus. And I think that's the deep cause. But we have to the first sickness is this is not the only one. This is a part of a cycle getting bigger and bigger of, of legitimacy. Uh, the use of protests and violent protests to make political points, that's a cycle that is, uh, um, you know, that we, we saw that in the summer. Yes, there's a lot of peaceful protest and a lot of, and then there's a small number of people who hijack it, but that is uh, part of the danger that's getting bigger. And there is uh, uh, toxic, crazy stuff on all sides of the internet. There's a lot of both left and right wing who are living in complete uh, fantasy worlds about what is our country, how does things work, what are the conspiracies, uh, and so forth. So I think um, I, I think we need to recognize that is a larger disease, not just the disease of Trumpism, him, Trump himself. And I think Neil, you, you've gone over the edge. Trump is is an awful person in many ways, but he's not a fascist. And he's not an authoritarian. People keep using that term. Uh, fascists had a very well worked out ideology of um, how one man in control, the, the Fuhrer Princip, would run things beautifully. Nothing out of Donald Trump's words said anything of the sort. I think it is uh, fashion is terrible, Donald Trump is terrible, but to just use that word uh, willy nilly. Um, Donald Trump was was ignorant of constitutional restraints. He's he's a narcissist, if you want. Uh, but to call him something he wasn't, I think, misdiagnoses the disease, and thus you're in danger of taking the wrong vaccine. John, I used the term advisedly. I said shading over from populism into fascism. I noticed that uh, the leading authority on on the history of fascism, Robert Paxton, agreed uh, with me in an article in Time Magazine. I think one has to call this. Uh, by its true name, when it uh, exhorts mobs to march on the legislature, when the big lie becomes the central theme of every speech, the big lie that the election was stolen. No, I I argued uh, vehemently against this uh, label of fascism uh, at the beginning of the Trump era and right through uh, to the beginning of this year. But you have to say that on the basis of his behavior since November the 3rd, Donald Trump has done everything to vindicate Tim Snyder and Applebaum and others who said, and Andrew Sullivan, my old friend, who said from the outset, this man is a fascist. I disagreed then. I don't think he was, in fact, behaving like a fascist uh, in the first part of uh, his administration. I think he did uh, He did in the last three months, and one has to call it by its real name. If we don't do that, then I think we suffer from a kind of historical slippage. Because as I said earlier, if, if that is not an attempt to overthrow the constitution of a republic, uh, to, to try to have an election simply, an election result reversed, and to use the mob to intimidate the legislature to do that, well, if that isn't fascism, I'm, I'm struggling well, to I, think quite well, what I is. To, I don't want to defend Donald Trump, but what a fascist would do in this circumstance is declare a state of emergency, call out the National Guard, shut down the TV and radio stations. Uh, his mobs would go to the Capitol Hill. They wouldn't go with with funny horns and hats. They would go with masks, with adequate weapons. They wouldn't be asking Nancy Pelosi to vote an, uh, an act to vote yourself. But, but John, not all fascists were competent. Uh, uh, Oswald Mosley was not competent, but he was still a fascist. But I think I think we're focusing too much on Donald Trump because uh, he will be gone fast. 
the ball is now in the Democrats' court. And I think the important question is, what is their next move? Uh, there will be a temptation to use this as the Reichstag fire. Granted, it was the other side that said it, not them. But you can say Trump is the fascist. We nearly got our democracy. Let's clamp down, take power and make, you know, what they're saying now, make sure he never comes back. He's not coming back no matter what you do. So there's that temptation. There will be the temptation to say, oh, the Internet was terrible. We need to seize control and censor the Internet and so forth. Uh, or there is, I, they, you know, what I'm hoping for, the H.R. McMaster thing, to bring in the good Republicans, the McDonald's, the Pence's, the people who have, who have said this is not how we do things. This election was lost. We go on to loyal opposition and try to heal this country, try to get away from the, the, the tit for tat norm busting that's been going on. That's what I hope. But the great temptation will be the other one. And I think that is what matters now, not, not what happens with Donald Trump. And hey, just one quick point on this. You know, there was a lot that needed to be disrupted, right? I mean, there was a reason why some people were losing confidence in, in our institutions and in government. But what they got with, with President Trump was, was someone who was disruptive to a fault and became destructive, right? And so, you know, I, I think it, it's possible for someone still to appeal to those who wants some, some uh, a degree of, of change, right? Or a fundamental shift in an approach to governing, uh, but but someone who will respect our institutions and our processes and, and, our, and our democratic principles uh, and, and be in it for, you know, for, for our fellow citizens, right? And not in it for, for themselves. HR, you wouldn't need me to translate the acronyms, but back in 2016, I said we faced a choice between SNAFU and FUBAR, and we voted for FUBAR. And if the United States last week wasn't FUBAR, again, I don't know what FUBAR means. Oh, yeah. Guys, we're, we're, we're running out of time here, guys. I'd like to ask you all one final question. Let's try to make it a quick answer. And it's this. We haven't talked about one thing in this broadcast. That's COVID. And here's the question. And I think, Neil, you've written about this. Is COVID making us all a little crazier? I'm not saying crazy to the point where you storm the Capitol, but as we continue to deal with pandemic and the social consequences, is crazier than normal the continued norm? HR1? I certainly think it's been a part of uh, the crisis. I, I've argued this for a while. If you look at the great pandemics of the past, they're associated with religious and political extremism. Uh, this was something that Thucydides observed in, in Athens. Uh, it was there in the time of the Black Death. Think of the flagellant orders. I don't think things would have gone as crazy in the summer, uh, in the Black Lives Matter protests, or last week uh, with the Stop the Steal uh, uh, failed insurgency. Uh, had it not been for the effects of the pandemic. And by the way, there is ample evidence that uh, problems of mental health have been exacerbated uh, by COVID-19. Uh, paper after paper documents uh, increases uh, in, in depression and all other forms uh, of, of mental illness. And it's hardly surprising because of the extraordinary strains that the pandemic uh, imposed on us, not just economically, but socially. Uh, we are not uh, a species that uh, likes to be shut up in our homes and cut off uh, from the crowd. So I, th I think one has to set the events of 2020 and 2021 in this kind of perspective. Most of the historical analogies being bandied around last week missed out the fact that this kind of stuff uh, tends to happen in the extreme uh, dislocation caused by a pandemic. Right. John? Um, I have a slightly different view. Um, during these weeks, while we're, the entire country is debating whether Trump should be uh, censured, uh, removed, 25th amendmented, or simply waited out, uh, COVID is quietly growing exponentially. Uh, a new strain is in, which is much more uh, uh, evolution, doesn't wait. Exponential growth doesn't wait. Uh, we discussed vaccines earlier in November, and you guys shouted me down for being, uh, for being grumpy about how the rollout was going to be. The rollout of the vaccine was even more chaotic than I could have possibly imagined. Uh, the incompetence of it is just astounding. And uh, so we're in a race between bureaucracy and exponential growth and evolution. And those two are winning fast over bureaucracy. This is just the basic competence of government, which is uh, the sad thing that's missing. And uh, you know, this would have been a wonderful time for politicians to say, no, FDA, damn it, get those shots out. 
know this the the crazy rules you're putting in on how to uh, allocate them are are, are going to stop and the vaccine just does not wait for us to do that so uh, I, I what I view covid right now is is just um, that's the remind the ever present while we sit around and fight uh, the enemy is at the gates and growing stronger every day and I, I want to put in one last word we've been I think we were uh, we've been very harsh on Mr. Trump. Uh, as of the election, uh, as, as unpleasant as his personal characteristics were, there were some accomplishments that only a disruptor could have done. Uh, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, the, the biggest deregulation ever, an economy that as of February was doing better than any of the standard pundits said it would. Now, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't what I would have liked. But um, he had reason to look back and, and uh, it, not Trump himself. But the administration that surrounded him actually did some stuff. And Trump threw that all away. So his legacy will now be not uh, solid accomplishments on the behalf of, of his base and all of America. And then some kind of crazy stuff during a pandemic. Now he's Mr. Mr. Horned Hat and, uh, and Beaver Skin Hat. That, that's that, it, it's a, a tragedy for all of us as well as him personally. HR, you get the final word. Yeah, so Bill, if I could just make two quick points here. One is to build on what John just said, is that I hope that what happens isn't a reaction to, to last week and the storming of the Capitol that results in, in, a, in a desire to throw out everything that the Trump administration did, uh, because I do think in the, in the area of foreign policy, there were some important initiatives that ought to be uh, continued. And then in, uh, on the point that, uh, that, that Neil was making about you know, the post-pandemic period, I think we have to recognize that this is a period of considerable trauma for the country and that and that we have we, we're going to need some important social and psychological remedies to it. You know, those who experience combat trauma are those who are put in a situation that generates a great deal of fear and anxiety, but also situations in which those particular soldiers fear, fear uh, feel powerless. And so I think what we have to do is to help all Americans understand that we do have agency. We do have authorship over our future. And all of us have a role in, in, in writing that future and writing that post-pandemic period of, of, of American history. And so, you know, I, I think that we have the institutions, the constitutional form of government to do that. We have fellow Americans who are, who are astounding in, in the degree of, of talent and dedication that they have that they have demonstrated during this pandemic. I mean, the fact that we have a vaccine right now, look at what our healthcare workers have done. And so I know it's it's sort of in our nature, right? And in this show too, to, to critique what's happened and to look for areas that, and, and problems that, that are in our face, like it was last week, uh, or situations that aren't going well. But we, we, we do need to take equal time to accentuate the positive, the gifts that we have, and, and take advantage of those gifts as, as we write you know, this post-pandemic future. Okay, let's leave it at that. Uh, we'll put a wrap on this, our first episode of 2021. I thought this was going to be a boring year compared to last year, but apparently not. We'll be back next week with another episode of Goodfellows, a new episode, a new conversation. Uh, I imagine we're going to be talking about the new president who will be coming into office. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, please, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy. And we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.